Amen. Good morning to you again. We are in John chapter 2 this week. We're starting in verse 1. And before I read it, just remember in chapter 1 that John, the Apostle John, said that we beheld his glory. I've been singing a lot about seeing the glory of God, about his glory, standing in awe of him. And John said, we beheld his glory. He was full of grace and truth. At the end of chapter 1, Nathanael sees some glory, sees Jesus knowing things about him and knowing where he's coming from and revealing himself to him. And and after Nathanael sees some glory, he believes. He says, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And after Nathanael makes that affirmation of faith, Jesus says, you believe just because of this? Remember that? He says, you're going to see more glory than that. There's more to come. And today as we... Look into John chapter 2, we're going to see that. Uh, interestingly, in John 11, when Jesus is speaking to Martha before he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he said uh, to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory? And so there's this pattern of Jesus revealing himself and glory being revealed and, and belief happening in response. And that that belief giving us eyes to see more glory and that glory giving us more faith and belief in this continual pattern that takes place until, the Bible says, we see him face to face. We see the glory. And then what happens to our faith then? (laughs) What happens to our sanctification then? We're made to be perfect. So this pattern of glory and belief and glory and belief and glory and our faith being strengthened and back and forth and back and forth. We're on this ride, if you will, until the day. And we're going to see a little bit more of that glory being revealed here in John chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 12 together. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given Jesus Christ to us. That we are able to see him in your word us today looking uh, back at the time of his life and ministry on this earth and that you were revealed to us through your son 
God, I pray that as we look through this passage today, though there are a lot of things to think about and a lot of things to learn and to talk about and and to know, God, I pray that none of those things would cloud our mind from beholding the manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ. God, make that the primary desire of our hearts because we want to know you and we want to grow for your honor and your praise. I pray that you'd help us to have this mind today in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so verse 1 says, On the third day, the third day from what? We know that this is, if we look back to chapter 1, this is two days after Jesus calls his first disciples. And the very day after, he says to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than these. So this is now the next day after Jesus makes this promise to Nathaniel. And there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, weddings back then in this region were a big, big deal. This was not uh, you show up on Saturday and you have the half-hour, 45-minute service, and then you go and have uh, the reception afterward and everybody goes home and is home by time for bed. Nothing like that. This is more like a seven-day feast, a seven-day party. And the actual conclusion of the wedding isn't happening until the end. And so the bride and groom and all the family and friends, they're there, and they're having this week-long festivity leading up to, and in its finality, the actual marriage of the couple. So that's what's happening in this marriage. Uh, so it would be a bad thing to run out of things before the end, because the end is the finale. Does that make sense? That's one reason this is important. Uh, but once the man and the woman were engaged to each other in this time, they were covenanted together. Uh, they could only be separated through divorce, which is why, if you think about it, Jesus wanted to put Mary away privately. They were engaged to each other. They could only be separated by divorce at that point. Okay, uh, They would not yet have been considered man and wife or consummated the relationship, but they were uh, bound to each other for the marriage to come. And the man in this engagement period had about a year. And in that year of their engagement, his job was to go and prepare a place for he and his bride. So before the wedding could actually take place, the man had to prove himself to be ready to have a wife, to care for her, to provide for the family that would, Lord willing, be to come. Sounds like a good system, doesn't it? <laughs> when we're young, we think, oh, that's crazy. And when we think of it, maybe you have a daughter and you think, oh, I like that idea a lot, actually. They had to prove that they were ready to go. Think about this. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. What's Jesus talking about? Jesus is the groom. Who's the bride? We are. The church. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. We're in that engagement period. The already and the not yet. And Jesus is going to come back and get his bride. Okay? Uh, Now, Jewish tradition as well. Guess who told the son that it was time? The man, I should say, gave it away. Guess who would tell the man to go get his bride? His father. (laughs) What did Jesus say? Who knows when the time is for the coming of the Son of Man? Father. So there's this picture of this wedding in the Jewish tradition. The father says to the son, son, go get your bride. 
and then Jesus comes and gets his bride. Amen? What a great picture. Ephesians 5 tells us this uh, even more, pointing to uh, the relationship of the church, the bride of Christ, and her groom, him giving himself up for her, sacrificing himself for her. So this is the picture of marriage and how it was practiced and how we can better understand what the second coming of Christ is with that context, okay? Now Cana, Cana, the town in Galilee, is just eight miles north of Nazareth. Uh, Last week I told you that Bethsaida and Nazareth were small little towns and villages, right? You remember that? Well, people in Cana had to go to Nazareth to go buy groceries, if you know what I mean, okay? Uh, Nazareth and Bethsaida are big compared to Cana, This is a small place, and it's just eight miles north of Nazareth. And so uh, these people that would have lived in the area of Cana, the people that would have lived in the area of Nazareth and all in between, uh, you know, we think about these small towns, and what's in between all these small towns in an agricultural community? You have people lining the way all the way down, right, in their properties. And so these people all would have known each other, many of them maybe even uh, close or distant relatives, uh, for generations, friends. And so when there's a wedding happening in Nazareth or a wedding happening in Cana, who's going to be there? Yeah, lots of people from both towns, if not everyone, right? That's what's happening uh, here. So it makes sense that Mary would be there, that Jesus would be there, that he could bring his disciples with him. These folks are all going to be in attendance at this wedding. Now, verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Notice there's no question mark there. She's just saying to him, they have no wine, okay? Now, first of all, let's talk about wine, all right? Is this passage about wine? No, okay? But I'm sure we need to talk about wine for a second, okay? Uh, We have some amazing things today in our culture. One of them is the refrigerator. And freezers, right? We have these things in our culture. We also have uh, water filtration systems, and we can, we can filter out and purify massive amounts of water so that you could go home today and with your lunch take a nice glass out and put it under the tap and turn that on and you will survive after you drink that glass of water, won't you? We have some pretty amazing things at our disposal today. Turns out they didn't have those things back in first century A.D. So, in order to keep juices drinkable and to keep them drinkable longer, they would allow for the process of fermentation, which also produces alcohol. Now, in order to reduce the alcohol content, because they didn't want to get drunk, they would dilute the wine with water. So the water would have a diluting effect to the alcohol content, and the alcohol content would have a diluting effect on the potentially bacterial or whatever nasty stuff was in the water. Does that make sense? So you put them together, and what do you get? Something that you can drink (laughs) and not get sick from. Does that make sense? This is how it happens. So not all wine was created equal back then. Uh, There was some wine that was more parts juice and more part or fewer parts water, some that was more water and less of the juice, the fermented juice. And it didn't have to be just grapes, but the wine, that terminology is the fruit of the vine. Okay, so you could call something wine... Biblically, we could see the word wine, and that could have from zero alcohol content, depending on the freshness of it, to potentially quite a bit. Does that make sense? And it's not necessarily always easy to tell which is which, even in the context of this 
passage. Um, so the conclusion here, not all wine had the same alcohol content. Some had more, some had less, some had hardly at all, some maybe had none. Okay? Uh, so that's what we're working with here in this passage. And the question, why would Mary come to Jesus? Why would Mary come to Jesus? And the first response that might be an easy response is because she knew who, who he was. And perhaps she knew that there were some miracles that were possible. That would make sense to us at first look. However, there's more to it than that. Uh, know that at this point, there are no indications that Joseph is still around. In fact, remember when Jesus is on the cross, and this is just three years later, when Jesus is on the cross, he gives Mary to John. Because at that point, it was his responsibility to care for his mother. Why? Because Joseph wasn't there. And so by indication, it seems as though Joseph has already passed away by this point in time. And so, if there's this big event happening and all the family and friends of the towns are all getting together, and if Mary's a part of the crew that's helping to serve at this wedding and make it go well and something bad happens, who's she going to go to? Her eldest son. She's going to go to Jesus. And that wouldn't have necessarily required a miracle. She just needed more wine. They needed something to drink. And so she went to her son, and we don't have wine. So if we didn't have what Jesus responds with here, we could potentially assume that she just wanted him to go out and get some more. Could Jesus have been honoring to his mother by going to the neighbor and saying, hey, they ran out, can we help you? We'll pay you back. Or something like that and brought it? Yeah, he could have, and he could have honored his mother in that way. But we're going to see that there's probably more to it. There's probably more to it than that. And to run out of wine at a wedding like this is a major blunder. A major blunder. Think of who all's at this wedding. Everybody in the Cana area, everybody in the Na- uh, Nazareth area, everybody in between, all these family and friends. And whose other weddings have they been to? Everybody's. And, and remember the wedding, the ceremony itself, the, the culmination, the, the marriage of these two people together is going to happen at the end. And this family has been to other people's weddings and they didn't run out of wine. So what does this look like? If you run out of wine and if this party is over already, what ingratitude? We took care of you. Aren't you going to take care of us? And you have this back and forth in the relationship. It strains the relationship. And so it wasn't just a matter of the party being over. It was, it was their relationship in and amongst their family and friends. They didn't want to, they didn't want to offend anybody and look ungrateful for all that had been done for them in the past. And certainly not not get invited to the next wedding, right? This is a big deal socially, socially for these folks. So in any case, Mary being one of the volunteers, one of the servants at this wedding, and by the way, the word for uh, servant in this passage is the word diakonos, which is the word we get deacon from. Okay, these are people who are willingly coming, ready to serve in this. They're not, there's no church yet, so they're not actually deacons or deaconesses. They're, they're serving at this wedding willingly, Okay. She comes to Jesus, there's a major problem, and she says, there's no wine. What does she want him to do? He knows. Jesus says to her in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? Does that sound like he's being a bad boy? <laughs> Ladies, would you like a son of yours to say something like that? Is woman disrespectful? I would not want to say woman to my mother. That would probably be a bad idea. But I want you to remember some things, okay? This is our uh, very good English translation of the original Greek manuscripts 
that are recording what Jesus said to his mother in Aramaic. (laughs) Okay, you following me? What Jesus actually said here in the cultural context would have been an equivalent of me saying to my mother, ma'am. Okay, now, especially if I was Southern and my mom said, go clean your room, and I say, yes, ma'am. That would be an appropriate thing. That would not be disrespectful. However, it would be even more closely aligned relationally if I said, yes, mother, or yes, mom. And he does have a bit of a distinction here by referring to her as ma'am. Not disrespectful, but there is a bit of a separation here. And he, and he concludes, he furthers it with this next part of the sentence, saying, what does this have to do with me? Literally, the wording here would be, what is it to me, to you? What is it to me, to you? This was a rebuke. Jesus is, in a sense, rebuking Mary here. Mary here. He's, he's saying to her, the relationship that you and I have, uh, it has a bearing on household needs and, and familiar relationships and, and everything on this earth. But Jesus has entered a time now where he's stepping into his messianic ministry. And he's saying to her, what I have to do from here on out, I need to listen to God. Okay, at this point, what is it to me, to you? I'm on this track now for the kingdom of heaven. And I have to listen to God. I have to listen to the Father and do what he wills me to do. Now, how many men on the face of the earth are allowed to say that to their mama? (laughs) One, right? One gets to say that. But is it valid? Yes. Yes, it's valid, okay? And he confirms with her, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What does he mean by that? Uh, Given the rebuke of Mary, it would seem to make sense that uh, what she's thinking of, maybe along the lines of what's in Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. I'll read that to you. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them, says the Lord your God. What is that period of time that he's referring to there, that Amos is referring to in that prophecy? Is that the time of Jesus' ministry on the earth? Is that how things were then? No, that's when he comes again, when he rules and reigns on this earth. That's the time period that's talking about. Okay, so maybe Mary's thinking about about that. Maybe Mary's asking, where's the wine? It's time. You're 30. You're grown up. Let's go. Could it be that in the moment of that crisis for her, that she was ready for the coming of the Son of Man so she could make sure the wedding was taken care of? And that might sound like a bad idea. And if that's what she's thinking, that would have been a, a bad idea. <laughs> right? That would have been a bad idea. But all over the Gospel of John, when he says that my hour is not yet come, Jesus is talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about the crucifixion. And in John 12, he says that his hour has come and that it was his time to be glorified. Glorified. Remember that as we go through the rest of this chapter, or the rest of these verses today. Uh, Mary is thinking ahead to the kingdom. Jesus knows that something else has to come first. 
There's something else I have to do before we get to have wine figuratively running down the hills. Okay? There's something I have to do first. And and so, ma'am, what is it to me to you? I'm on this track. This is my father's will. This is what I have to do. Let's take care of this first. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying to Mary. Verse 5. This is great. His mother, in response to Jesus' rebuke here, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay? Now, I don't think Mary's being pushy here. I don't think she is, okay? Uh, Because could Jesus have said to them, hey, go to the Joneses and get some wine. They have extra. We'll pay them. Could he have said that? And if he said that, Mary said, do whatever he tells you. But Mary does know and acknowledge that Jesus is the eldest son. He's the one who is the fixer of all that ails us because he's the man of the house. So whatever he tells you to do, do it. Okay, so she does leave this responsibility with him. And Jesus is going to solve the problem, by the way, as we read before, but maybe not the way she expected. Verse 6. There were six stone water jars there. For, what is the purpose? For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These jars are not for consumption. These jars that were used for the rite of purification were not being used earlier in the wedding for drinking water or for wine. They were being used for the Jewish rite of purification. This was, in a sense, a ceremonial washing of your hands. It probably was not very effective in our in our mindset today where we want to have hand sanitizer and antibacterial soap and warm water. And you're not using the same bowl that they just used, are you? All of those kinds of things would have been horrible for us and we would have thought, you're just spreading germs. But this was a ceremonial a ceremonial rite of purification for the Jewish people. This is something that they were doing in a desire and an effort to be obedient to the law as they came together to eat and to dine together in celebration of this marriage. These were for that purpose. And Jesus says, get these six stone water jars. And they're each 20 or 30 gallons. So you want to do the math? (laughs) Good. I didn't even do it. I was just going to say this. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons equals a lot of wine. Okay, that's what we're going to come up there with our conclusion for that. More than they needed? Yes. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. They filled them all the way up to the brim. Now, the filling of the jars may not seem to be that significant of a thing to us. wonder why they would do that, why he would have them do that. But if there was still room in the jars, what could Jesus have done? Think about how they made wine, how they would have wanted to drink it. There was a combination of some of the fermented juice and the water to dilute it. So if you fill them up about halfway with water, what can happen? Fill them up about halfway with wine. Okay, so here's what didn't happen. This might be kind of silly to think about this, but Jesus didn't say, fill them up halfway and then, hey, everybody, look over there. Wine. This was not a magic trick. This was not a sleight of hand. These waters, or these jars were filled to the brim all the way up. This was a miracle. 
Verse 8, he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast is just the guy who's running the, running the party. He's the wedding planner. And remember Mary said, do whatever he tells you. So they took it. And I wonder here if this plan is still by faith. It says in the next passage, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. When did it happen? <laughs> I don't know and it doesn't matter too much. But I wonder, did it happen while it was still in the jar for purification? Did they dip a cup into water and take it and it became wine on the way there? I don't know. It was a miracle. It happened somewhere in there, okay? And, and the, the master of the feast did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, and that's important later on. The master of the feast, after he had tasted this wine, he calls the bridegroom. Why the bridegroom? Back then, another fun, different thing that they used to do is that the bridegroom and his family was responsible for the cost and for the materials for the big party. Who does that in our culture? That's a good tradition, too. I think we should go back to that. Uh, no. He goes to the bridegroom because ultimately he's the one who's on the line for this, okay? That's why he goes to the bridegroom. It makes sense, right? The Bible makes sense in even those little insignificant ways. He goes to the bridegroom. Why? Because his name's on the line. That's why. And said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, and that is a euphemism for once everybody's gotten drunk, then the poor wine. Does that mean that everybody at this party was drunk? No, it means this guy's been a master of weddings. And generally, people get drunk after a while. And then generally, they put the poor wine out after that. And generally, drunk people can't tell. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. And this this would still be true for us today if you think about it. Even even uh, in our circles and we're having somebody over for, for lunch after church and we want to have some pizza, we're not going to serve all the $5 pizzas. And then when everybody's had their fill, go, oh, hey, guess what's next? The perfect Chicago deep dish pizza. I said, what? Why didn't you serve that first? That's what I would want to eat, but I don't want to eat enough and eat all these $5 pizzas. Right? We wouldn't do that. We'd give the good stuff first. What do we do? We, we put out the good stuff when we have a guest. And if they eat all of that, and they still want to eat more, how rude. Then we say, hey, you know what? The kitchen's that way. Go check the fridge. You're going to have some leftovers or something. That, that would be typically the way we would handle that, right? He says, no, no, no. You saved the good wine. You kept the good wine until now. Think about this. Why did this wine taste so good? Why? Yeah, I heard that. Jesus made it. That's a good reason. This wine was new. This wine was fresh. It was miraculously made by Christ. Christ made it be so. Even in Second Corinthians 5, uh, when we put our faith in Christ, we are a new creation in Christ. All the old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christ makes things new. And probably, if you think about it, given the fact that this is miraculously made by the will of God, 
The other times that we would think about these kinds of things being made by the will of God, like that would have been in the garden. Maybe this is the best, best thing anybody's had since then. Perhaps. And perhaps, too, just out of just reality, uh, this is fresh. Was there need of fermentation in this? It's brand new. Maybe it tasted really good because there was none of that stuff in it. It's a possibility. But Jesus is making everything new, and this is the best. He makes the best. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs. John doesn't call this just a miracle. He doesn't say, Jesus did this miracle, wasn't it cool? He said, this is the first of his signs. What's the purpose of the Gospel of John? That you would believe, and that believing you would have eternal life. This is a sign. John is saying here, look at what Jesus did. Who do you think he might be? Believe. Believe on the Christ. He says this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. What kind of town was Cana? A bustling metropolis. It was a little, small town. And small even on our terms. Small, small, small. Okay? Maybe a couple hundred people. Maybe. Maybe. And the God of the universe manifested his glory, the first of his signs, in Cana? Why? Why? Well, think about this. The quality the value of the glory had a lot more to do with the source of the glory than in how many people saw it. Are you following me on that? What is the quality of the glory? It's not because a bunch of people said, sweet! It's because it was Jesus. The quality of the glory is from the source of the glory, Jesus Christ, not in the applause and the praise of man. That is a huge thing for us to remember. This is big glory in a little town. If all people care about is the praise of man, then the number of people and the amount of applause that they get becomes, it is, the measure of the glory. But that is not how God works. Your social media posts are not better or worse because of how many people like them. Okay, we can get so enthralled in staring at our social media to see if everybody saw our post or likes our post or likes our pictures or all the other uh, opinions, and we say, oh, they only liked it, why didn't they love it? And all those kinds of things that we could think about and have our mind all engaged in with social media. But glory isn't the number of likes you get. It's not. That's not what glory is. Jesus is not more or less glorious because of how many people repent and follow him. Students, elementary students, middle school, high school, college, wherever you are in your education, Please do not let the number of people who refuse to believe or, or the potential mocking attitude or even other students or professors who would make you think that Jesus' glory is anything less than more than you could ever imagine. Just because somebody else doesn't think highly of him doesn't mean he isn't to be highly thought of. He is the Messiah. People don't get to decide who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He doesn't have to operate on our terms, 
on their terms. He is who he is, and no man can deny him of that. That's pride. That's pride. So be careful not to let the foolish pride of man keep you from being confident in the glory of our almighty God. It says after this that his disciples believed in him. They saw the manifestation of his glory and they believed in him. And that after this he went down to Capernaum, his mother's brothers, his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. Notice that although all the other servants there who saw what happened, they were well aware of what had occurred at this wedding. Who left there that day believing in Jesus? Mom and brothers are going because they're supposed to, because they're family, right? And not that they don't, but the other scriptures do tell us Mary believed, but the brothers didn't, not until after the resurrection. His disciples. Who came believing? His disciples. Who left believing? His disciples. Okay, seeing isn't always believing. And we probably should even go further with that. Seeing isn't believing. Seeing isn't believing. Every time a person hears the word and believes, it is a miracle of God. The Spirit has been at work making that heart into good soil for the seed of God's work to take root and to bear fruit. And who makes everything new? Jesus makes everything new. And every child of God is a new creation in Christ Jesus. If you're doing the devotions on the church blog, this this week we were going through Matthew 13. And he's going through the parables. He's starting to speak in parables in Matthew 13. And he shares one. And at the end of the parable, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he explains to the disciples uh, what the parable means. He tells the disciples why he speaks in parables. And in a sense, it's judgment. And in, in the Psalms, it said that he would speak in parables because the people didn't want to listen. It was a form of judgment. But then even after that, Jesus shares more parables. And then he gives the explanation of the parable. And even after the explanation, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why would Jesus say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, after the, in a sense, shrouded and difficult to understand parable, and after the completely, clearly executed and explained description of the parable? Well, if he described it, shouldn't it be just understood? No, he still says, he who has ears to hear. How does the soil of your heart become good soil? Who goes around the world convicting the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness? It's the work of the Spirit of God. He who has ears to hear, that's a gift. A gift from God. Jesus manifested his glory in Canaan of Galilee and his disciples who already believed in him left with him. They are believing in him. And finally, I think we need to look closely at what it means here when it says that Jesus manifested his glory. What does that mean? I brought up earlier John 12, 23 in this message. And in that verse, Jesus was referring to his coming crucifixion. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what happened at Jesus' glorification at the cross? We know that Jesus died on the cross in our place, the just for the unjust, that God poured out on him the wrath that we deserve so that we could be forgiven, 
so that we could be justified, so that we could be purified. God's work does that. Revelation 7.14 says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What washes us whiter than snow? The blood. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now think, before Jesus was crucified at the Last Supper, what was he holding when he said, This is my blood. This cup is my blood. He's holding the wine. What was holding the water that Jesus turned into wine on this day at this wedding feast? Those jars that are for the purpose of purification. Purification. Church, why don't we need those purification jars anymore? Why don't we need purification rituals anymore? Because the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, has already shed his blood for you and for me. Christ cried out on the cross, It is finished. It is finished. Jesus turned those ritual purification jars into wedding reception drink dispensers because we don't need them anymore. Jesus is saying something, even in this miracle. His, his blood is our purification. No more ritualistic rites. No more of those kinds of things to make grace happen, though you can't make grace happen. That's grace. It's unmerited favor. We are purified by the blood of Jesus, and it is finished. Religion doesn't save you. The cross of Christ is the finished work of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul wrote this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. So if you say, I don't like that plan. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do we grow? How do we progressively get transformed from one place to the next? By beholding the glory of the Lord. The veil in this verse is referring back to Moses. Remember that he had to put a veil over his face to guard the people of Israel from seeing the glory of God being reflected off of his face after he'd been up on Sinai. And the children of Israel needed that veil, Paul says, because of the hardness of their heart, because of their unbelief. If we look at this passage today, this, this story of Jesus turning the water into wine, and if we view it with a veil over our face because of hardness of our hearts or because of unbelief, we can see all kinds of things. We'll see things and make things up about wedding, about weddings. Uh, some people believe that because Jesus did a miracle at a wedding that it somehow makes weddings uh, sanctifying or salvific, that it makes them more saved than they used to be. We might see things about Mary Something, uh, there are people who use this passage 
to argue for praying to Mary because Mary has access to Jesus and he can, she can have him get things done. Fail. We could look at this passage and, and think that it's about God giving us nicer things if we claim it. Uh, we can look at this passage and, and focus on the wine and think about the wine or try to even excuse drunkenness. Uh, you name it. You name it. And if our hearts are hard, we will find an excuse to find something to come up with anything. But if you come humbly, repenting of your sin, putting all of your faith and trust for your salvation, Jesus Christ, and in his finished work at the cross, your hard heart, it says in Ezekiel, will be removed. And God will give you a new heart, a new heart of flesh that's moldable and shapeable and can be worked on. He'll make you a new creation and the veil will be taken away. And when the veil is taken away, you will see glory. You'll see glory. In this passage, we see Jesus as glorious. Uh, we'll no longer mock Jesus or his followers. People with the veil taken off bow the knee. We'll no longer think that we have to uh, do certain things, that we have what it takes to get into heaven because of our works or our efforts or our goodwill. Instead, we'll say like, uh, like the man at the, with the Pharisee and the tax collector, he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he will. God promises he will. If you have never placed your faith in Christ, if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, do it right now. Do it today. If you want to talk more about it, please talk to the person who might be sitting next to you or see me or see somebody in the church right after the service. Please do not hear about the manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ today and leave with a hard heart. Leave with the veil still over your face. Do not leave here more interested in your own reputation, your own works, the praise and acceptance of man. I've shared the gospel with people who would say, that sounds wonderful, but, and you know there's something coming after that, right? And it may be religion. It might be their family. I had one lady one time, her family, she was the last surviving of her generation from the Greek Orthodox Church. And she said, if I were to leave the church, she got it. If I were to leave my church, it would crush my mother. Her mother had passed. And everybody else in the family had left. What, what was the major concern? And it's so sad. Because we want to have compassion, and we should have compassion. But that's believing a lie. That is wanting the praise of man more than submitting to the Lord. These things are all lies that lead people straight into hell. Believe. Put all of your faith, all of your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Christians... The more we see his glory, the more we behold it, the more we change, the more we become like him.
We didn't work to earn our salvation, and we're not going to work to keep it. We're not going to work to enhance it. And if we get caught up in doing tasks, in, in reading books, and memorizing scripture, etc., 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 in order to cause ourselves to grow. Notice that important word there. In order to cause ourselves to grow, it's not going to work. Uh, listen, if, you, if you're not looking for and finding the glory of God in those things, in those disciplines, which we ought to be doing, but if you're doing it that way, we're not going to be changing. Uh, not for the good, anyway. We're probably just going to get more religious, which could be a bad thing. And we're probably going to be more legalistic. It's not about us. I'm not going to figure it out. Uh, notice that I did not say to stop reading the Bible every day. <laughs> what I said is read the Bible every day to see the glory of God. To see him and see his glory. Uh, and not to learn new tricks or new life hacks. You will learn, by the way, right? But it's not about finding all the tricks so that it's easier for you. That's not what it's about. We don't pray uh, to, to get points, brownie points that are redeemable for prizes or for answers. We pray because we want to talk to our loving, glorious Father and come to church to worship God, uh, to learn of his glory, to build one another up in the faith. We don't come here, this is just tongue-in-cheek, we don't come here to accumulate a record and to get a perfect attendance batch at the end of the quarter, right? That's not why we're here. What is the motivation? Uh, we want to see God for all he is. We want to see Jesus Christ. Uh, we want to learn of his glory being manifested. We want to see him. And when we do, and as we do, and as we receive that with humble hearts, we grow. And we change. Remember that cycle. We see glory, and we believe. Our faith is strengthened. And believing, we see the glory. And through that, God continues to work in us. God in his glory calls sinners to repentance. Souls are saved. People are progressively and then finally transformed. And in that way, God gets all the glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus manifested his glory. God, we thank you that as we just look at him and the way that he manifests his glory, we are reminded to not value the same things that the world often values. When we think of Jesus manifesting his glory without a huge crowd, without a huge a burst of affirmation and praise from all of the masses. When we think of Jesus manifesting his glory by hanging on a cross, God, it's right for us to be humbled. I pray that we would come to you humbly, that we would have uh, just a great deal, a weight of gratitude for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that we could be called your children. God, help us to think 
biblically to think in this way that we would uh, love you more than what this world has to offer that we would love your word and love seeing your glory manifested in your word more than we would love any other kind of attraction or form of entertainment or anything else that would distract us from what you've called us and created us to be lord we thank you that jesus can do miracles and we thank you for the miracle uh, in our hearts of regeneration that we can be saved that we'd be made a new creation. And we thank you that there will be a day when we see him face to face and we are made to be just like him. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your faithfulness that we can trust in you wholly. And help us, Lord, to honor you as we walk in these truths, as we continue to seek and see your glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.